0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, if you like this program, visit heritageradio network.org for thousands more.
1: Hi and welcome to a taste of the past. I'm your host Linda Palacio here on Heritage Radio Network and Uh, If you're listening to this live, you'll know I know that many of you are in a flurry of plans for the Thanksgiving holidays and the whole festive holiday season, wondering, should you buy a fresh turkey or a frozen turkey or a heritage turkey? Uh, Defrost that bird and put it in the oven and preheat your oven and microwave your whatever You can get it done. You think, oh, my God, it's such a big dinner. It's going to take me forever. You can get it done in a pretty good amount of time because imagine what it would take if you had to do the whole thing over an open hearth, a live fire. Well, my guest today is Carolina Capehart, and she's going to talk all about how to do that over an open fire and what it would have taken and what the people did in the past to cook such a big meal. Carolina is a culinary historian and an experienced hearth cook whose passion for historic foodways began more than two decades ago while working at a Midwestern living history museum. Her specialty is preparing dishes over an open fire, using the recipes, or receipts, as they were called then, right? Yes. Equipment, utensils, and ingredients of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. She writes about her cooking adventures at www.historiccookery.com. Dot com, And I am witness to Carolina's ability to be a historical interpreter, even down to wearing, or not up to wearing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the appropriate dress wear. She dresses up in the in the colonial fashion, and uh, and it's quite a treat. Caroline, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so t- the complications of cooking over an open hearth, I mean, today we think, uh, I think we think of open hearth cooking as basically slapping on a couple burgers or a steak on top of the fire on a grill and yes we cook on the open hearth but that's not what it's all about right
2: right no no it's more um well you can actually you can cook anything that you cook nowadays you could have cooked over an open fire um it's just a different sort of system and you have to know about the fire and how to keep it going and what utensils and pots and pans and whatnot to use for whatever dish you're doing um i personally find it Easier. I I don't really cook normally. Um, (laughs) You know, modern recipes kind of scare me because they're they're so specific that I'm like, well, what if my oven doesn't heat that high? What if it's funky? Maybe it's you know. Whereas I I sort of learned how to cook from scratch, so to speak, at the at the the Living History Museum umpteen hundred years ago. Uh, That's where I really learned how to cook. So I learned
1: how to cook over an open fire. So how? So tell me, first of all, let's start then okay. with the fire. Because, I mean, again, you mentioned you can cook anything. I, mean, I think people forget. They think it's only about roasting meats or grilling meats. But, I mean, everything from chowders and stews and, and cookies and cakes. I mean, let's talk about the fire first because that's the important part. Okay. I mean, a big fire, a hot fire, how do you judge the fire? You want a good roaring
2: fire. But the main thing that you want for cooking are the coals that are produced, the hot embers. Um, if you have your fire in the fireplace there, and it's it's blazing away, you want to wait till there are hot coals or embers that have dropped down, and, and you take those out of the fire and put them out on the hearth, and make like a little burner, huh. and then you set a pan, or a, to say a spider, a long-legged skillet, or a, a bake kettle, which people a lot of people call a Dutch oven but i found out that that's really not the correct term but anyway um it's a bake kettle not i always thought it was dutch oven to bake it's a bake kettle i've i found well this is sort of getting off the subject but i have found recently um four different uh, uh evidences that uh or documentation that a, a, a dutch oven was really a tin reflector oven oh and i've seen pictures in different books where they call the sort of dutch oven with the three legs and mm-hmm. the lid and all mm-hmm. that they call that a bake kettle.
1: Okay, um, so, we're, we're, back the, so we're back to the so we're uh, yeah. back to
2: the back to the embers on the on the bake kettle. Um, but you put the embers out on the hearth, mm-hmm. and then you set whatever it is on top of that. Now, if you're using the bake kettle, you put the you put the, the bake kettle on top of those embers, and then put in your whatever you're cooking. Put the lid on, and then put embers on top. Then that way, it's heating it from the top and the bottom, just like your modern oven does. Um, but also, you can pull out. Uh, some embers, and then set like a, a long-legged uh, skillet or spider on top of that, and fry some uh, sweet potato, say, or um, uh, just sort of mix up anything that uh, you're needing. Uh, but at the same time, you can hang if you like. Need to boil parsnips or boil some
1: carrots, you mm-hmm. can hang that off probably off the crane. That's over the fire that swings in and out. Okay, now that's so that's special equipment for the fireplace, type. right? So, tell me about what like the
2: well the crane. The crane I I have not really looked into, it. But I understand the crane is an American invention. But prior to that, they had what they called lug poles. They were up in the kind of in the chimney of the fireplace, and at first, they were just made out of green, you know, green limb off a tree, green branch. Um, And, of course, they would have to be replaced when they dried out because they would catch on fire. Mm -hmm. Then they got the bright idea, well, maybe it would be better if they were made out of iron, and then they put those in there. But the problem with that is you have to sort of kind of step into the fire and and, then take things off or hang things up, move things over, and so on and so forth. Um, So having this crane... Attached to this, to the, sort of to the side of the of the fireplace, so it swings in and out, and you can hang things there to cook, you can hang your tea kettle on there to, mm-hmm. for hot water keep that there all the time, and then you can, you can, and you can pull things in and out, put it on that way you 're not having to actually get into the fire it 's a little safer, a little just a little better to, to be using. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's not as long, usually. Sometimes it's too short, but uh, it, it's uh, better to use that.
1: Well, I, you know, it's interesting because there was, uh, in some article I, I had read, I think it was either Hannah Glass or um, Amelia Simmons made reference to roasting a, a, some type of fowl a bird and said to hang it from the chimney, uh, from the pole at the chimney top, or just made reference to the chimney top. So that must have been the lug pole that, that they were well, you could hang it
2: usually if you're if you're roasting the the meat it needs to be kind of set not over the flame so much but just sort of the you want the radiant heat from those flames so if you had there were several ways to do it if you had a pair of uh, of cast iron um, uh, and irons in your mm-hmm. fireplace, oftentimes they had little hooks on the front of them and then you had a a, a long spit or a long metal pole mm-hmm. sure. that you would then put on those hooks you'd spear mm-hmm. your 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 fowl or your rump roast or whatever you had, and then set the whole thing then on those, those hooks on the andirons. The problem with that is you had to have somebody sit there, either a young child or a servant or a slave or whatever, and they had to sit there and turn it continually until it was done. Um, they also had other ways to turn it. Um, they also had uh, what they called clock jacks that were attached to the mantle, and then through a system of pulleys that were then attached to that spit you set the clock jack to 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 run, and it would sort of automatically tick off, and it would turn it by you know that way, without huh. having to have a person do it. Right. They also had what they called dog spits. They were round. It was almost like a hamster wheel, <laughs> only it was a small dog that was bred just to do this job. And he would be in that uh, in that uh, sort of cage thing and going round and round and round, and then through a system of pulleys and whatnot, that would then turn the spit. Um, you didn't have that, maybe you could use a a tin reflector oven, um, which I have discovered lately. I think a lot of people thought back then was called a Dutch oven, Um, uh, and not the cast iron pots. A lot of people call Dutch ovens, but anyway, um, these tin reflector uh, ovens—you, it's—it's sort of like a half barrel, and you spit your again, you spit your fowl or your roast or whatever um, in there, and set it in front of the fire, um, and then it. It cooks all around because the tin reflects off the, the back of it reflects off the heat from the fire. There's a little trap door at the back if you want to check on it or you want to baste it or what have you. Um, And you really don't have to turn it. You can cook an entire uh, chicken or whatever uh, just by doing that. You don't need to really turn it. You can if you want to or if it looks like maybe something happened to the fire and you need to do that. But um, another way to do it, if you don't have any of those, is you can just sort of truss it up with a bunch of string and you hang it either off the mantle or off on, uh, off a lug pole or off the crane. Right, that's kind of, I guess that's what I had. Read, kind of you know, to the, the side of the of the fire because you don't want it right over the flame, but kinda of to the side. Um, and it sort of hangs down there. And if you twist it and turn it, it should spin around one way. And then spin around the other way. Yeah you've wound <laughs> it up yourself. You spin it, wind it up kind of and then it will spin on its own. It goes around one way and then it goes back around the other way. Sometimes you might have to re Restart it, so yeah. to speak, so it continues to do that. But that's another way, another
1: method to use. Well, um, necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they managed to find ways to turn so, it around. And around. Um, well, you you talk about a lot of these different pots, and of course, some pots you would, as you say, boiling parsnips, you'd hang them right in the fire to get that water boiling. Other pots you put over the embers, and some you keep closer to the fire. Um, what about Baking. You've often, um, you're also a, a member of the Culinary Historians of New York, and you have brought to um, different of our lectures. Um, baked goods. Baked goods, yeah. <laughs> yes. you know, like little, little cookies or cakes and things. And what about baking? Baking, uh,
2: There again, there are sort of two ways you could do that. Most people have, again, the bake kettle, and you could use that to bake uh, baked puddings or bake bread or what have you, again, with the coals underneath and coals on top. Um, that creates a, a little oven. Ideally, you would have a brick bake oven in your house. Now, not everybody had one. Uh, there might be one in the
1: community that you lived in, and you, you would sort of share it with your neighbors. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. There were more community um, ovens. And when did the when did the really the bake oven come into? I mean, I guess by the time they built houses, but the bake ovens. Were they? Do you know any history about that? Oh, I think they've been around for well, for I know centuries in the early in the ancient Roman times they right. had bake ovens. But um, as far as in as being part of the hearth or of off the, to house?
2: the side, yeah. I think there. I mean, there are 17th century houses that have uh, have bake ovens. The interesting thing about the bake ovens is, at first, talking about the the, the cranes and lug poles earlier. Um, at the fir- beginning, the, this bake oven was at the back of the fireplace mm-hmm. in the center. So to get to it, you kind of had to step Again, into, get into the fire. The fire. <laughs> then they moved it to one or the other side, uh, which it was a little better. But sometimes, uh, you know, if it's a small small fireplace, you could still be it's, that fire's mighty close. Then eventually, they moved it outside, so it was over off to the side uh, from the from the actual fireplace. So that was sort of the progression of, of bake ovens. Right.
1: Um, well, I love visiting some of these historic um, kitchens where they have. Oh, 10, 12, 20-foot hearths, I mean, huge, where they're cooking for, you know, massive amounts of people and, and massive amounts of food. They were, um, you know, in, the, in these grand homes and, and estates, and they'd have these huge hearths that must have taken a lot to get that going and keep it going.
2: Well, that's the important, the, the main thing is you've got your fire going and you never want it to go out. You need to keep it always going. Um, because if you if you let it go out, then you've got to get out your flint and steel and start all over again, or you send some kid or some child or some servant or whatever down the road to the nearest neighbor to get some a bucket of coals to bring them back up so you can oh, start your already fire hot here. embers to right. start it. From so if you have coals, you can restart your fire. The main th- usually, if particularly in the summertime or at night, you often would bank your coals. Uh, and then you sort of put ashes on top of them, cover them up, and that keeps them going and keeps them hot and then in the morning, you would just sort of uncover them and start all over again hmm. um, wow and it, and it does work i've i 've done that oftentimes before yeah that's so.
1: i mean so they so basically people you had to be totally consumed with your fire I and mean, in cooking i mean because it was an it was a twenty four seven process really it, it was really i mean everybody you had to eat. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you couldn't, otherwise you'd starve.
2: So um, you had to keep it going all the time. Um, and if you were, if and you know, the head of the household, the female head of the household, she she knew what to do and what to cook and whatnot. And she would then teach her, her girls and then they would teach their girls and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, sort of passed down from, you know, from mother to daughter to granddaughter and so on and so
1: forth. Um, well, the ingredients, and you say you, you follow the, you know, the actual Historic recipes. When you are doing some of these historical interpretations at um, several museums, you work currently at, um, uh, or you know, when the occasion arises, at a couple of museums. Yes, I can be. uh, I'm I'm regularly.
2: (laughs) I can be regularly seen (laughs) at uh, the Israel Crane House in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh Um, I'm there usually the first Sunday of every month, Um, and then this year they're trying to also add in the, the third Sunday, and then there are some special things that they have now and then. For instance, December. 7th and 8th, I think it is, um, is the Essex County Historical Holiday Historical Houses Tour or something like that, so the Crane
1: House will be part of that, and so it'll be open from 1 to 4
2: on Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there are quite a few of these um, so-called living museums right. around the country. I know, particularly throughout the Midwest, there are a lot of them, and well, were you well, first did your training? Right. Yeah. I used to <laughs> work at one, at called, it was called, Con- well, it's still called Connor Prairie. When I was there, it was called Connor
2: Prairie Living History Museum or Connor Prairie Museum. It's... It has a different name now, a mm-hmm. different – it's gotten much larger and has a different sort of focus, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. But it, uh, and certainly I know um, upstate and throughout New England there are right, lots like of well, – Old Sturbridge they, Village, right. Plymouth
2: Plantation, right, Colonial right. Williamsburg. Colonial Williamsburg, right. Um,
1: and then there are lots of little houses here and there. Manor. Yeah, yeah. Really, all mm-hmm. right. um, Well, when we come back – we're going to take a short break, and when we come okay. back, we're going to talk about some of these – Antique recipes, <laughs> historic recipes. and Those are my th-
2: favorite. Uh, and
1: I, 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 try to, I try to be as historically accurate as possible. Oh, uh, well, so we'll talk so, about some of the challenges that okay. presents. Right. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
0: You are listening to Favorite Flower by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org.
1: Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years full circle return to sustainable land stewardship, and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with culinary historian Carolina Capehart, who is a historical interpreter as well of... Um, uh, colonial and, well, yeah, colonial period, uh, open hearth cooking. And I, what I wanted, we were talking about roasting meats and the different methods of cooking over the fire, and I, just, I have to read this quote from the inimitable Karen Hess, who was a wonderful writer and culinary historian. And in an interview she gave with um, Mother Earth News in 1977, she said, roast meats aren't what they used to be. Until a century ago, turkeys and squabs and hams and other meats were roasted to a golden brown perfection in front of, not over, a blazing fire. Today, however, the art of roasting meat in this fashion has been almost totally forgotten. Well... Thanks to you, Carolina, oh, some people are keeping the trend alive. We're trying. <laughs> right. And and we were mentioning that it is um, the holidays. We're on the cusp of the holiday season here and people planning big meals and the time it takes. Well, in the 18th, early 19th century, what would be an example of a large harvest. We know they didn't sell. The colonialists did not celebrate Thanksgiving much to right. everyone else's uh, misinformation. <laughs> that didn't come about until eighteen sixty three. People, eighteen sixty three, right? Um, and, but they did have harvest festivals, right? And um, what would what would be a typical? Some of the dishes on a typical harvest menu. Well, I sort of made up a, a, a you know a, a harvest
2: menu that uh, would be sort of typical for the fall. Number one. Um, which means there would be all of the bounty from the harvest available. Uh, but that doesn't mean fresh meat per se or fresh vegetables. They might be, um, you know, your preserved items and whatnot. But um, it's just sort of, and also it could just sort of be a, just a large meal that uh, someone might have. So I thought maybe perhaps you'd have um, a roast chicken or pigeons, um, maybe a squash pudding, either baked or boiled. Uh, and puddings are a very interesting uh, item.
1: Now remember, this is all over an open or in front of yes. an open fire.
2: Uh, and boiled parsnips or carrots or maybe both together, perhaps uh, um, an Indian meal pudding, which is cornmeal, and uh, of course bread. Got to have bread at every meal, and then perhaps we'll end
1: everything with an apple tart. Mm. Well, it sounds actually it, so- it doesn't. It sounds very today. Also, I mean, right? You got your squash. You got your. I mean, well, you don't have your greens, but well, you could you have turnips. You could have, you could have, have peas. Peas, okay.
2: Your yeah. peas would be dried. Right. So that, you know, nowadays they tell everybody you need to eat seasonally and locally. And back in the 18th century and before and, and 19th century, they did that, but it's partly because they had to. Right. They, there's no other thing they could do. Things weren't shipped in from somewhere else. All those, at the same time, there were quite a few things that were imported things like lemons and oranges or sugar mm-hmm. coffee tea chocolate uh the list goes on and on so they weren't completely local but as far as your main what you're eating on a daily basis um your meats and your fish and your vegetables and so on and so forth and your uh, fruits those would be local because you would just go out your backyard to your kitchen garden and get your herbs and maybe a few vegetables or you'd go out to the Onto the farm, and you know, butcher a hog or two, or uh, butcher a chicken, or whatever right. slaughter a chicken, um, and that's how you would got your food. Or you would maybe, uh, and you and you harvest your wheat, take it to the mill, have it uh, milled into flour, so on and so forth. Um, or you, if you didn't have any of those things, you might trade with someone else, or or barter with someone, uh, a neighbor or whatever. And then, of course, um, the
1: necessity and, and importance of preserving and put as you said, drying, putting up food. Right, for, you know, right.
2: For yeah. You had to you had to put up food. So it was uh, the fall. Really, was a busy time. So while the harvesting is going on, you're also putting up food. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, you're slaughtering your hogs. Um, you've got to take care of that meat to make it last. So you're going to be smoking some of it. You're going to be putting some of it in brine. You're going to do uh, salt pork. Um, and then of course you uh, render the lard for use for cooking. Um, you could, they used all parts of the animal. Um, no, it was the they, tail. They, they didn't <laughs> they didn't waste anything. Ever, used everything but the tail, yeah. probably. Although they, I'm sure well, there I'm were sure things they, they did. Yeah. had for that. Um, the bladder, even you could use to, as a as a I And I did this one time at, uh, at the Israel Crane House. Um, I put it over uh, a crock to to seal it, which is how they would have used it. Um, you could also use cloth or something. A pastry um, dough, right? Um, and some woman said, oh, it's just like, uh, you know, it's the colonial saran wrap. Like, <laughs> well, kind of, yes. Um, or you could, the you know, the children could blow up the bladder and use it as sort of a football or a balloon or whatever and bat mm-hmm. it around and that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not, it uh, has nothing to do with eating, obviously, but. Well, what, um, um, so a meal like that would take, about how long would it take in preparation over an open hearth? Like, depending on the size of your hearth i suppose
2: right um well it would uh, it it would take all morning typically um the main meal of the day was in the middle of the day probably around noon or one somewhere in there Mm -hmm. um you have to realize that the majority of the population probably 95 percent if not more were farmers um your thomas jefferson types they were the sort of the one percent like nowadays most people were like john adams who was a farmer um and, in fact, that was Jefferson's ideal society for America was the, uh, an agricultural one. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out that way, but, um, but most people were farmers. Um, and so you would you'd have your meal probably during the hottest time of the day. Um, and if there's anything left over from that main meal, that dinner uh, that was in the middle of the day, you'd have that then for supper later in the evening. There's anything left over from that, you then have that for breakfast. Right. Now, if there weren't any leftovers, why you would then fix something else that was, but on a smaller scale than what you did for the, the right. main meal.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because um, it um, I had a guest on. Uh not long ago, Abigail Carroll, who um, has just published a, a historian, just published a book called Three Squares, and it's the invention of the American meal. Says, when did we start eating the three square meals a day and the big meal at night? And and it's interesting because times changed and so did our right. our, our meal plans. Our you know the right. way we eat, and it's understandable that with all that work that it took, you have that one big meal, and it was in the middle of the day. Right, right. right. Well, and two the that midday meal, the sort of the dinner. For
2: the the well to do, you know, it it got later and later. It might be, you know, instead of a one, it might be a two or something. And then it started getting later and later and later because it got to be fashionable to have your dinner later. Mm. Um, And then they would have supper even at, you know, like at 10 o'clock at night because you had to have some time between the the dinner and the supper. Um, And so I think that's probably how dinner ended up being more. Around five o'clock or something, it' was just a, it was sort of the progression over time, um, agree, yeah. And as more people got more leisure time, well let me ask you that.
1: When you are in um, reproducing some of these historical recipes, or as they were called, receipts, receipts. in those days, um, what, what challenges do you run into? What, what's, what are some of the toughest um, things that you encounter when, when trying to interpret these recipes?
2: Um, there are several things. Probably one of the biggest things is, uh, does, is the language the same? Does, you know, does this mean what it means nowadays? Um, sometimes uh, the receipts are, are a bit cryptic. There are things missing, because um, you're supposed to know. Yeah. <laughs> it may be a cookbook and it was commercially printed, but the idea is that you still, you know the basics, so I don't have to tell you that. I'm writing this cookbook, but, you know, here, take it. You know what to do. And,
1: unfortunately, we don't know what to do. Measurement um, very the, Rarely were there measurements. Right, right, they
2: didn't. It was just, uh, and even though it said like a spoon or, or a teacup full, they meant, you know, whatever spoon you had. I mean, usually it usually was an eating spoon. If you wanted a teaspoon, it would be what you used when you drank tea. Um, but oftentimes, they often used weight. You know, a pound of this, an ounce of that, a quart of this, mm-hmm. a gallon of that, that kind of thing. A gill. How
1: about a gill?
2: Right. So, um. Um. I think it's pronounced Jill. Or Jill.
1: I, mean, uh, I, I will.
2: I, I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> oh no, I'm not that sure. Um, we'll I, Google it. <laughs> but yeah, we we'll have to. Um. I think it's half a cup. Um. Was that English or was that? That's colonial? an. I think was that's it. That, well, it's in English. In old English. Um, so it would have transferred over to here. Um, but that's the thing the main thing is well and then, too that's the other problem is uh, in England the the weight system changed I think at one point or other so it's it's sometimes it's difficult to transfer it into well what does that mean you know mm-hmm. even a pound of flour what does that mean uh, about- sometimes you just have to weigh
1: it and, f- and figure it out Right so let's say you okay you you've managed to kind of cobble together the the measurements the amounts what about types of, of ingredients that are called for? Anything that. Well, works? sometimes, I mean,
2: well, you know, if you're supposed to fry something in lard, where do I get lard? Or if I'm supposed to fry it in suet, where do I get suet? Or if I'm going to make a minced meat pie, it's, you know, four pounds of, of meat, either veal or beef tongue, and uh, four pounds of suet. Well, where do I, where do I get that? Um, um, I've, I'm sort of lucky, there's a, a, a grocery store near me that actually sells hog fat in little packages. And uh, I take it home and I render it and make my own lard. Mm-hmm. They also sell, I can also get beef fat from them, and it's free. <laughs> so if I'm making a minced meat pie, I, I just, you know, I tell them ahead of time, um, and it's no problem. But finding some of those ingredients can be very difficult. But there are, for instance, I know there's a a, a butcher somewhere in Manhattan, uh, I think on 9th, 9th Avenue and 38th, somewhere in there that still sells suet and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That is a problem, though, is finding some of these ingredients and who sells them and, and whatnot. There you, is, a, of course, you go online, there is a, a woman who, well, it used to be a woman who was selling that kind of thing, you know, hard to find ingredients. ingredients. Um, and then someone just took it over from her because she retired from doing that. Um, but that's another option that you can do. There are things like verjuice, you know, what the heck is verjuice? Where do I find that? Or But oddly enough, I'm surprised sometimes that, you can go to a store and
1: there's verjuice on the shelf, or yeah. you know. Well, today, well, actually, today it's it's now it's sort of had a resurgence.
2: Right, you know. right. Well, because it's, it's it's so different and Virgin, ooh, this is the yes. latest thing, and oh, well, try this. So uh, it's interesting. Yeah, some of these things are coming back. Um, but sometimes, if you want to boil something, and it says to boil it in the stomach of a cow. Finding that can be a bit that difficult. Be
1: enough, right. um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, it's been processed and cut up and, and boiled for tripe, so you know, forget yeah. it.
2: <laughs> so finding even finding hog bladders is. I get mine from a woman down who lives in Pennsylvania. Used to work down near Trenton, um, and she mails it to me. <laughs> Ah, Interesting. Uh, yeah. Of course, it comes dried, uh-huh. um, and I just sort of I put it in water and soak it, and then it's you can use it again. That's uh-huh. that's part of the plan or the idea is that you can use it for something, and then sort of clean it, rehydrate and it, or whatever, and and use it again.
1: Huh. Um, Interesting.
2: They're supposed they're clean, you know, before you use them, obviously. Um, but uh, it is. Uh, I've and I've looked for like hogs bladders and whatnot in my neighborhood. I which I sort of thought, well, maybe maybe. So many, but I'm I'm sort of amazed that even the farmers market they don't they have no idea where well, the stuff goes. Well, I
1: don't think there are that many people who are going to cook with it. I'm certainly <laughs> not going to be. <laughs> no, with I them. suppose not. But. but it's interesting that what you know the way you've described it, aside from having to go out and grow and and procure all your own ingredients, the actual cooking is probably was not that didn't take that much more time and prep, I mean, didn't have, couldn't whir it in a blender or right. chop it in the food processor right. or nuke it in the microwave to speed up the process. But otherwise, um, the cooking process itself over an open fire was, the time time frame was not that much different. It could be. I mean, it is a little longer because you don't
2: have all those modern conveniences. Right. But, you know, I, at home, I, I as I said, I, how I learned to cook is, by learning how to do hearth cooking Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm when I have to stir something I prefer to stir it or mix it up or whatever I don't even own a a electric mixer Um, because me that that takes too long to get it out set it up (laughs) you know and then do it and then clean it all clean the bowl clean the beaters you know and then put it away and it's just yeah I'll just get out my spoon and beat it up and I'm done I well, I sort of don't understand that, but it, it can't it, – it, it's a lot of work. It is labor-intensive, I mm-hmm, guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same, I sort of – sometimes I say to people, well, what else were you we going to do? You know, it's <laughs> not like you had to run off to your job or go watch TV or, you yeah. know, tweet to all your friends or get
1: online and uh, put Well, that's just it. I mean, if, if you had – if that was your main job and your main concern right. was cooking and, and preparing the food, no problem. Right, then right, You right. had all the time to do and it. And that
2: was pretty much right. every – Female head of the household—that was, that was her job—was yeah. to take care of the family and feed them.
1: Well, you are wonderful at um, at sharing this information with people at these well, living museums, you. and I encourage people if you have not gone to a demonstration at, at one at an old, you know, look up the historic houses in your area and your state, and um, and it's worth a trip to see because it is fascinating that the uh, the types of cooking that was done and the and some of the beautiful implements i mean the implements there was artistry in the blacksmithery and yeah, and they are, they are, and they are very wonderful yeah. wonderful implements and thank you so much for sharing your information oh, with us you're and welcome. thank you for sharing your information with everybody who comes by again you're you welcome. can read about carolina's um, adventures and if we had a time machine she'd fit right in <laughs> we could send her back to the colonial period um at historiccookery.com and once again thank you for listening this has been a Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork dot org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.